Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hi. It's been so long. I don't know what is happening to this fall or what I just, holy smokes. It's like the middle of October. Yeah. And here we are. Uh, yeah. The year's almost over. It'll be over. Like don't when we wake that. up next. Don't even It's insane. That. <laughs> it's like, no. uh, how have you been? Welcome. I'm good. Yeah, I know. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, fine. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't had time to think about it, I guess. Yeah, but. that sounds about right. That does. <laughs> I I feel like we owe everyone like an apology. I think we dropped off the face of the earth last week and then yeah, and now we're we back. Did. But we and hope hi. everyone's okay. Welcome to the podcast. If you're new to this podcast, this is Our Dirty Laundry, where we talk about uh, we are two white women, childhood friends who want to learn about the history of white women. And lo and behold, it's usually a bunch of dirty business. It's usually shenanigans. Exactly. (laughs) So we, we are finishing up our season on eugenics. Um, and we've pivoted to this book that we're going to talk about today that we've started reading women of color and the reproductive right rights movement by Jennifer Nelson. Um, but we're, yeah, we just dish. We're happy you're here. And if you're a long time listener, welcome back. Sorry. We were absent. <laughs> My brother sent a link to an article to like our family text thread, uh, like last week, some point that was really funny. I mean, not funny, but it was funny. It was about <laughs> these like guys that got lost at sea and they were lost at sea for like 29 days. Oh my gosh. And when they found them, of course, they were nearly starving to death and weak and oh my emaciated God. and all of that. But the, the guy was quoted as saying, that even though they went through all of that and almost died, he was like, but I didn't hear about like COVID or <laughs> politics or climate oh change God. or anything. He's like, so it was kind of a nice break. <laughs> oh my God. And then it was like, I relate. <laughs> I, like, oh I almost God. died. But it was I a mean, nice break. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> clearly it was a happy ending to the story that they got rescued. So I, I definitely can relate. If if someone were like, <laughs> you're going to be a castaway, you will be rescued. Yeah. It's just going to be like, a you know, you're going to be in kind of a rough spot for 29 days. Honestly, yeah, that does sound kind of awesome. Yeah, maybe. We could do it. <laughs> wow. That, that guy... That guy's been through it. That's also He's, such a horrible testament to how just shitty things are right now. Someone's like, I'd rather shit. be on a lifeboat with a bunch of sharks circling <laughs> because at least then I don't have to like hear about at the least latest. It's a break. <laughs> Jeez. That's, that's intense. If anybody listening is in that situation, we feel you. Hang mm-hmm. in there. <laughs> I mean, what choice do we have? (laughs) Yeah, just keep going. Keep keep going going. on. Yeah. Well, hi. Yeah, but hi. So we're we're gonna jump into this book, which I, I mean, I don't know why. I'm always surprised about the things that I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> or <Wow>. the perspectives <laughs> that I have like not considered or <laughs> like by now we should just know that it's all so limited. We are just a giant mess of our own entangled thoughts and experiences and yeah, it's just, it's good to do this and read this kind of stuff so we can get out of that. So yeah. that's one of the, the main same, things. The same response, like, holy smokes, even, even as she's like setting up the white middle-class feminist, radical feminist movement, we will get into more what this book is about. But even as she's kind of setting that up in order to talk about the ways that they fell short or the ways that they needed to grow and expand and that women of color activists are what pushed them to have a more complicated stance. Um, even, even just the basic outlines of her sketching out those radical feminists. I, I yeah. knew almost none of it. No, mm-mm. definitely none. Yeah. So very yeah. interesting. So we'll talk, <laughs> um, I wanted to introduce her a little bit. Perfect. So the author of this book and the book again is called women of color and the reproductive rights movement. And it's written by Jennifer Nelson, who's a professor of women, gender and sexuality studies at university of Redlands in California. Um, she got her undergraduate degree at Brown university, her PhD at Rutgers university, um, and now teaches with an emphasis in women's history. And this book was actually her dissertation, or it started as her dissertation. Um, and then she's written another book that's called More Than Medicine, A History of the Women's Movement, a Women's Health Movement. And she's written several articles um, in women's studies journals, uh, on women's health, social justice movements, all that kind of stuff, and a bunch of academic things. So, um, yeah, that yeah, is I, what she's doing. And we have reached out to her. We hope to be able to talk to her. <laughs> I, I mean, her life her. is probably, you know, equally, if not more so busy than all of ours. So oh, sure. we get it. But. It's total. We're excited to read her work, regardless of whether we get to talk to her. But um, it made me think so much of Kara and Susan, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, and their mm-hmm. work, um, and the connections between women's health and healing and history and eugenics and justice and you know all of those combinations of things. It's just super interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I liked it. let's dive in. So. Okay, we're doing it a little bit differently this time because normally we we task one of us to do the reading and report back to the other. So we'll see how this goes. We're both reading this yeah. at the same time. Maybe you're doing a closer read. How far have you gotten in the book? Uh, I would say I'm about halfway through. Oh, you're was... further than I am then. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I have a couple pages left in chapter three. Oh, great. So, okay. Yeah. Well, so we can just like talk about uh, the stuff that we've both gotten to and then we'll just keep this going for a couple episodes yeah, I think that's and discuss great. all of it so overarching like the I mean I think I just brought this up but the complexity of this issue is again just kind of surprising to me mm-hmm. I guess is the mm-hmm. thing um and and she kind of touches on that very early on I mean I guess that's her point as well, um, that white women tended to have a very singular focus in the early reproductive rights movement, which focused on the right to 
limit how many children you would have and control the timing of when you would have those children, um, mm-hmm. which was a very different focus than women of color who also had this focus of the right to have children, mm-hmm. to not have that right taken away from them. Um and a very legitimate distrust of the medical system that I think white people very seldomly encounter when they are, you know, talking about these uh, reproductive health and other topics. So mm-hmm. just the idea that in general, reproductive health encompasses both the right to limit your reproduction and the right to have children. And yes. that was just something that I had not really mm-hmm. talked about. Or considered at all. I don't know if that's something that you noticed. Well, I kept jotting down in the margins, all the connections to people we've taught, other historians we've talked to or other things that we've read. Like I kept thinking Mm -hmm. about Stephanie Jones Rogers and her work, that fabulous book, They Were Her Property, about Mm -hmm. white women's involvement in in slavery and that the ways that they interfered with black women's um, connections to their children, you know, Mm -hmm. sold children away or even tried to keep them after slavery was made illegal and and you know uh, and of course just thinking about the lack of control that black women had in chattel slavery over their bodies and over their reproduction you know just how how that range of issues is so much more expansive but that white women in particular have this connection to interfering in the rights of other women to have children to keep relationships with their children. I know we keep, we've mentioned this a couple other times, but wanting to have an episode or two about transracial adoptions and the role that white women have played in, in projects that are also based on eugenics logic or like a a sense that like our family is going to be better for this kid than their cultural community or their biological family. Mm -hmm. So there's just, I, I totally agree with you. Like it's, it's, a shift. It's an ex- more expansive view to, that is acknowledging these really complicated histories or, you know, looking at forced sterilization, which it, there were white women who had been forcibly sterilized, but they yeah. were primarily poor women. So just mm-hmm. thinking about the ways that classism, racism mm-hmm. intersect here and how easy it is for like a white wealthier woman to think, oh, this is the problem is that I can't have sex without consequences. And yes, that is a problem, but it is a problem in a giant shit pile of problems that is very particular to, to our position and not one that's universal. I think that's something that in the introduction at least was also really stressed. And I imagine she'll get into more is the ways that radical feminists in the sixties and seventies who were doing these consciousness raising groups that sound really powerful. And I think there was a Mm -hmm. lot like that, that is a really cool method for developing theory and for building connections and solidarity, but that the focus is on universalizing an experience and finding a connection instead of thinking about like, yes, this is my experience and this is what I want to fight for, but that's not necessarily exactly what someone else is experiencing or what they want to fight for. So how can we work together to fight for like a whole range of things connected by a much bigger umbrella And I think we've talked about that issue um, Mm -hmm. before as well. Like you, like who's invited to these discussions and whose experiences 
are being listened to because right. that I jotted that down when I was reading about those consciousness raising sessions too. There's this very big problem of individuals focusing on their own experience. I mean, it's powerful, which she Super demonstrates powerful. in this book, like yeah. people being able to come out and actually openly talk about things that have been so taboo and shamed and right. hidden is very powerful for other people to recognize that they're not alone and that this is not a shameful thing and right. that we should not have to hide these sorts of things in that way. It's very powerful to talk about individual experiences. On the other hand, a lot of us only ha can identify with things that have affected us or someone that we directly know. And we have a big problem with empathy in situations that we don't find ourselves in, which is natural, I guess, mm -hmm. but also something that I think we really need to work to push ourselves outside of mm -hmm. because it shouldn't have to be have to be something that affects us for us to give a shit about it. Yeah. It shouldn't have to be, you know, our kid or our, you know, a person we go to church with. It should be any human being. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a like thing that I lob against Republicans a lot, which it's not fair to just say it's Republicans because, you know, liberals and Democrats are guilty of it as well. But I always feel like a lot of the conservative people that I know, here I go again, talking about <laughs> my own experience, like are against an issue, against an issue, against an issue until it comes to face them, until they have a daughter that needs an abortion, or they have a kid that's transgender, or they know somebody who X, Y, and Z, or they got covid because they didn't get the vaccine and now they want to like evangelize to everybody on Facebook that they should get the vaccine because COVID was really terrible. And it's like, well, where the fuck were you when everybody else was saying that and you didn't oh, care yeah. until it affected you. And I just saw that theme like very heavily playing in the whole discussion of reproduction. Yeah. As I well. would, for me, it's less of like a partisan or ideological position. I think that it's, it's, the where I see that coming from is more from a sense of entitlement or a sense of privilege. And that cuts across mm -hmm. part, party lines that cuts across ideological lines. Like if you're someone who hasn't had to confront those situations before, then you're like aghast when it happens to you or you're upset when it happens to you. I mean, I think the the history of white wealthy women is just that like well, how very mm -hmm. dare you, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what, mm -hmm. like you're going to tell me no to something. And, you know, meanwhile, generations of people are like, yeah, it fucking sucks. And we've been trying to explain that and welcome to the party. Like, yeah, this is, this is reality. You know, yeah, I, that was definitely something I noticed for sure. I was, I just kept trying to think about like takeaway lessons that connect to all of these other things that we've been learning. And these, let's just stick with these consciousness raising groups for a second, because I think there's yeah. a lot here. And then we can maybe even back up and just talk about what um, what Professor Nelson was, the, the history she lays out of just abortion access in general, because I think that was yep. really interesting. But yep. these consciousness raising groups um, were like, who's, so your point that we want to be really, really careful as white women that we don't universalize our experience. And we think mm -hmm. like, Oh, this is my experience as a woman. So it's everyone's experience who identifies mm -hmm. as a woman, like red flag, like that. It, it doesn't denigrate your experience or your, what you care about at all. It's just to, as a reminder, just because you experienced it doesn't mean that's 
how everybody else experiences it. And then the second thing I think with these consciousness raising groups is a lot of times it was like in people's living rooms or like in a coffee shop or something. And you have to think about part of the power of it were these like grassroots, very intimate setting kinds of groups, but then you're Mm -hmm. likely to invite your, the people, you know, or the people who are Mm -hmm. in your social network or social circle. And because of, of longstanding systems of racial segregation, economic segregation, like odds are, you know, people who have had the same kinds of experiences and backgrounds as you, like it's unlikely that you're going to invite a super diverse group of women on based on age and ability and the economic position and, you know, sexual identity and gender expression and race and ethnicity and religion, like odds are you're going to invite a bunch of people like you. And so it's, it's not to say that that inherently is useless. I think there's still a lot of power there. Like she talks about, I loved this quote, this group, the red stockings, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, um, started to, they were really upset because there were legislative hearings. I love this. There were like 14 (laughs) or 15 people and it was all men and then a nun. None. I love that too. Like, <laughs> like what? Oh, all the experts. I mean, just so, so typical. But here's all the experts on women's reproductive rights men and a nun. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck? Makes a lot of sense. So I get why they were pissed and they, they had these like disruption. Um, like they would protest at the hearings and try to like crash the hearings basically. And then they started hosting these public testimonies where people would come like hundreds of people would come and they'd set up a mic and a recorder and they would invite reporters or community members. And then women not planned, not scripted would get up and testify. Like this was Mm -hmm. my experience. And there was some range of experiences within just that, even like women who definitely didn't want kids, don't want kids, women who really wanted kids, but were too poor to have them. Or, you know, like there were lots of, Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, different situations, but she talks about the atmosphere. This is a quote from page 36 for anyone following along. The atmosphere in the room was one of camaraderie and shared experience. Many of the women also expressed wonder that there were so many others who had lived through similar traumas during an unexpected and unwanted pregnancy. So I think the power of these kinds of meetings are to build that camaraderie and for people to feel less alone. Like it's not just you, like it is a Mm -hmm. bigger issue. And at the same time, this is like one of those classic both ends, acknowledging like not everyone who needs to be in the room might be in the room right now. So mm-hmm. this is powerful, but it's not universal. And when we are structuring events like that, trying to be as conscientious and deliberate as possible in in making sure there is representation and invitation. And what I find myself frustrated with white middle-class feminists for, and I say that as someone who identifies that way, Uh is how often we experience that and then turn around and do it ourselves. Like this part I thought was really fascinating where she talks about the emergence of this like second wave feminism and radical feminists um, in the sixties and seventies. And that a lot of them came out of the civil rights movement that they'd been women who were organizing in different ways for that. Some of them, it sounds like came from the anti-war movement, but primarily civil rights. So there's mm-hmm. this like new left that's emerging and they, she talks about this counter inaugural demonstration um, in the late sixties, probably 1968 and reimagining or 1969, like during that inauguration. Mm-hmm. And she says that there was this like, like new left 
counter inauguration event and that this woman, um, Marilyn Webb, was invited, but at the very last second as, quote, an afterthought, because most of the male organizers put the war in black liberation ahead of women's liberation, which also harkened back to suffrage and abolition, like pitting those issues against each other instead of seeing them together. So then this woman gets up to speak and her speech was actually fairly moderate, but the men in the audience, quote, booed, laughed, catcalled, and yelled enlightened remarks like, take her off the stage and fuck her. Uh-huh. Such degrading treatment by supposed, that. yeah, oh supposed gosh. political brothers, outraged feminists, and forced many female activists to question the sanctity of movement solidarity. So it's like you, ex- you're experiencing that afterthoughtness or that, like, your concerns and issues don't matter here. And then at the same time, when then you start organizing, I don't, yeah. you know, it's like the same pattern just repeats itself. So I feel this like perpetual frustration when we are learning these histories of how white women have these moments where you think would be like, aha moments like, oh, we're not going to organize that way. But it's like, oh, you don't want to hear us then we're going to go over here and we're going to do our own thing without thinking of how those lessons apply. Did you pick up on that? What, what were yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, I think just what you were saying, the one who we're inviting, who we're listening to. And I, some of that is limited by even knowing who to ask, I guess. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think that it was pretty clear through a lot of this history that these other issues that white feminists were not considering were well known. People were talking about them. I mean, um, she does bring up what we talked about in the um, L.A. County hospitals with the Quilligan versus Madrigal or Madrigal versus Quilligan case um, of sterilizations in L.A. County. And she talks mm-hmm. about several other examples like the Minnie Lee Ralph, who's a 12 year old that was sterilized. Like these were fairly well-known incidences. So I don't feel like people who were in leadership in women feminist groups didn't know these sorts of things they sh- they i'm sure they did and they didn't seem to consider them or be inviting those people as much um as themselves and then yeah i mean just the lack of recognition that the kind of opposition that you're facing is the same as what you're also doing to other people is it's mind-boggling it's fr- it's just very frustrating and i know you i mean i can think of examples in my own life where I've participated in that or where I've been like on a panel or at a group and looked around and I'm like, Oh my God, like clearly we don't have the right people at the table. Yeah. We should stop the conversation. Like yeah. let's not go forward until we have like a better assembly of people here. I it's, mm-hmm. I, and I struggle sometimes like there's a group I'm part of right now that very much feels that way. And there've been efforts to like raise like, to say like, this group is very white. We need mm-hmm. to have other people at the table, especially given the intention and purpose of the group. And there's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. The leader will say, you know, like, so do you know anybody mm-hmm. or like, Oh, great point. We'll, um, we'll talk about that next time instead of hearing like, well, no, we shouldn't keep meeting until we fix yeah. this problem. Or if you are in a leadership role and you don't know anybody, that's a problem. There's one yeah. panel I'm thinking of. Um, and yeah, this, there's a lot I could implicate myself in here for too. Like, this is something <laughs> I, I feel like I have needed to be better at. I'm trying to be better at, but 
there was a, a panel a few years ago that was put together for the state and it was looking at like equity in schools. And when I got there, they'd asked me to come and, you know, be part of the panel. I was like, oh, sure, this sounds interesting. And my mistake was I didn't ask who else was on the panel. And I, you know, I didn't make that a priority of, of making sure that, that it was more representative. So mm-hmm. we get there and it's all white women on this panel. And they were like super interesting women with tons of professional experience. Like that's great. But it is still a problem, especially when you're talking about racial equity in schools to have a panel of white women, right? It's the equivalent of like mm-hmm. 14 men and a nun talking yep. <laughs> about reproductive rights. <laughs> yeah. And so thank God there was someone in the audience, the very first question, this person's like, I want to know why it's all white women talking about this issue. And mm-hmm. I know this, I, I feel bad showing this particular story because I feel like I look like less of an asshole when I could share stories where I've definitely been the asshole, but Mm -hmm. there, you know, each woman gave this like defense of why, um, Mm -hmm. like, well, there's actually not a lot of educators of color in the state. And so, you know, there, there just aren't any, was kind of the excuse. Like it's just us, which is Mm -hmm. totally not true. You know, like, yes, it's disproportionately smaller, but that doesn't mean there aren't like super amazing educators of color in the state. And so finally, when it got to me, I was like, I, there is no excuse. Like you're absolutely right. This panel shouldn't have been constituted this way. And like, as someone on this panel who holds the identities I hold, I should have asked. And if this is the makeup of the panel, excuse myself and suggest somebody else to be in my place because this, you're right. This conversation shouldn't happen this way. So it, I don't know, like I said, I, I don't think I have a like awesome track record of this is something I'm trying to be a lot better about just saying who's in the room, who should be in the room, and we shouldn't meet until the right people are in the room. We shouldn't keep having these conversations. I don't know. What's yeah. your experience with that? Um, I mean, I'm just thinking of a, like a positive experience that I've had recently mm-hmm. in that um, realm because I, we just started my kids in an elementary school that has just been built. And so it's in the public schools, but this is its first year. So the PTA is forming and different mm-hmm. committees were forming. Um and during like a tour of the school, there was a sign up for PTA committees. Um, and so I was looking around at all of them. And one of them was a DEI committee for diversity, equity, inclusion um, mm-hmm. that I signed up for. And it, there were a few other people signed up. There was also a box to check, like to, if you wanted to be the chair of the committee mm-hmm. or if you would be interested in being the chair of the committee. And no one had checked that box. And so mm-hmm. I was like, well there was like this internal struggle that it was like, <laughs> I, I would, but I don't, I probably shouldn't. Cause I'm, you know, like the white woman here. I feel like somebody else should maybe chair it, but if nobody else will. So I checked the box, but I almost wanted to like put a comment in there and say, <laughs> like an only <laughs> if nobody else is willing to, not because I don't want to, but because I feel like better people could do it. But thankfully Um, there were lots of other people that stepped up and I went to the first meeting for it and the chair is a woman of color Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of people that were not white. I mean, I would say probably Mm -hmm. half the group was white women, but the other half of the group was not. And I was glad to see that there were people that were more Mm -hmm. represented. And just even in that first meeting, they brought up things that I'm sure would not have been brought up. Mm -hmm had the group been constituted differently. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, even always, in that circumstance, there's always it was... two layers. Like, A, these issues don't get brought to the table. Like, this group of women that were organizing, they've, like, the red stockings, you know, they had legitimate 
concerns. Like I was mm-hmm. reading and just so fascinated by their background and and just outraged learning more about the the history of abortion. I mean, just again, like you were saying, things I just didn't know about. So I, I know that they totally had a point, but these other issues, they hadn't experienced themselves. So they literally would not think to put them on the table or would have put mm-hmm. them on the table in like a clunky sort of way. Mm-hmm. The other then level of it is what happens when people put an issue on the table does it get rejected? Is not that important? Does it get, you know, ignored? Does it get like, oh, that's just you being a complainer or whatever, you know, like, so it's making sure that issues get on the table and then making sure that we're not assholes about following up on those issues, you know? Well, and that also reminds me of what we talked about in suffrage where white women are willing to compromise on things in order Mm -hmm. to win their battles but we're throwing other people under the bus. Um, like you were just saying about white women's experience with um, abortion and fertility control and reproductive control, um, sometimes because of our privilege and our ability to still obtain the things that we need to, even if things aren't legal. I mean, I'm thinking now, like women were getting abortions when it was illegal. Yeah, let's it talk a little bit about that background, because I even that in the introduction of the book, I was like, huh, I actually don't know much of this history. So it sounds yep. like the beginning of the 20th century, that like 19th century, it, it just was like what happened. It said abortion until quickening when the mother felt the fetus yep. move was legal as a matter of common law in the U.S. until the middle of the 19th century. And the 19th century campaigners against abortion which she doesn't really go into like what motivated them or what their reasoning was a beyond. It sounds like one of the primary concerns was that the technology had not advanced particularly right. well. And so, so abortion, abortion was, was actually dangerous. really dangerous, even mm-hmm. if done like quote legally. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like there was some concern about like some legitimate concern about women's health. But then by the early 20th century, anti-abortion campaigns had succeeded in making abortion legal in all of the States. Um, but that, of course, women were still having abortions and that there was this tacit acceptance for quite a while. Like, yeah, it's technically illegal, but it sounds like it was still pretty easy for lots of different women to access. Um, and then the, by the 30s, the number of abortions had increased and abortion as a procedure began to shift away from midwives into like hospitals, which yeah. then brought it into like state regulation quite a bit more. And I did not know this, that in the forties hospitals established what was called therapeutic abortion committees that would review like a, basically like a request for an abortion. Mm -hmm. And that of course this opens up for all sorts of ways for people's bias or prejudice to come out. And so these committees, and I'm sure it was like 14 men in the nine committees um, <laughs> that they had. I kind of want that just to be We're like the name st- of a, like a sitcom, like yeah, 14 dudes and a nun <laughs> making decisions about other women's bodies. Boo, they, they, they do. Um, but they had these medical exceptions, like that they were supposed to review if the woman's life was going to be threatened. And that was the medical exception that above board was considered legal. Um, but that, at first they interpreted that medical exception really, really broadly. I thought this was fascinating. Like 
in the Great Depression and, and when times were really tough, that they that a lot of these committees said, yeah, for women to have a child like threatens the life of her other children and of her mm-hmm. because it's going to be like another mouth to feed and things are really tough right now. Um, but then in the 40s, just a wave of conservatism in general um, cracked down on this. And then I, I thought this was gross that the physicians would look at who was, quote, deserving Mm-hmm. which we know that's loaded mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. filled chock-a-block full of eugenics logic. And that some physicians quote, even required that a woman be sterilized after her hospital abortion, punishing her for her transgression, which was engaging in sex without wanting a child by eliminating her right to motherhood at all, which I thought was yep. horrible. And of course, white and middle-class women accounted for the vast majority of therapeutic abortion cases. And there is evidence that physicians and hospital committees were willing to bend the rules and interpret therapeutic abortion more liberally for white middle-class women. Of course. Low-income patients were more likely to be forcibly sterilized after a therapeutic abortion than their white middle-class equivalents. And like you said, of course, I feel like that is just, we need a button that's just like, of course mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I also thought it was interesting, too, that before the 1970s, it says the Catholic Church represented the only organized opposition to abortion. I thought that was fascinating, too. Yeah. And I know I know there's we should probably pull these up and link to these, but really interesting reporting on the rise of the new right and this like combination of evangelical Christians and conservatives and, and like a very concerted effort to make abortion a culture. What are those called? Sledgehammer wedge issues. A wedge. Sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Both. Feels like One that. of these weapons that just like <laughs> bludgeons you or stabs you. Um, but that it, that, that it wasn't a wedge issue and it was really just the Catholic church, but that there were these like super intentional efforts by folks like far right politico, like, you know, puppet master sort of people like that exists behind the scenes in all like ideological parties, but um, really trying to make abortion this like flashpoint, like reason. I, I mean, I have people in my family, like that's the reason they vote for someone is, mm-hmm. is whether or not they oppose abortion and literally anything else doesn't matter. So yeah. it, but the fact that, that that was not an organized, like, right. Rallying but that's a pretty cry recent development. before. Yeah. The set that's, that was, I, mm-hmm. yeah, that was definitely one of those mind blowing kinds of revelations to me for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But going back to these committees and how they selected people that they mm-hmm. thought were like deserving and would approve people that they thought were the right kind of people to allow them to right. participate in this. Like what it leads to is not that women of color were not getting abortions. They just weren't getting safe abortions. That's right. So then they were put more at risk of complications. And it says one of the statistics is that women of color died from abortion related complications nearly four times as often as white women, which was directly related to a lack of access to quality health care experienced by women of color. So most at that point in time, therapeutic hospital abortions ranged um, the cost range from six hundred to eight hundred dollars, which was far too much for anyone who was poor. And we know the connection between class and race is mm-hmm. usually, you know, very, very close. Um, mm-hmm. But few poor minority women had the connections to locate physicians willing to perform safe, illegal abortions. So mm-hmm. it's like this double-edged sword 
where you're just doubly screwed by the whole system. Um, and it, as a yeah. like medical provider, this was another perspective that was interesting mm-hmm. for me to consider because one of the things that they bring up is this um, push where abortions were pushed into hospitals right. instead of being in clinics. Cause it sounds like early on it was performed in clinics and not necessarily by physicians, but by just practitioners of some sort who had been trained midwives, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. other sorts of medical technicians. And then there's this push to have them provided only by physicians and in hospital settings. And I think my initial response to that would be like, well, yeah, like that's much mm-hmm. safer when you're having something like that done, you want mm-hmm. it done in a controlled situation where there's all of the resources available and you want it done by people who are highly trained, but without considering like the cost that that's going to put on it Mm -hmm. and how that's going to limit people's access to it. And is it really necessary or is that just part of our system that continues to like capitalize on medical procedures that we can make money off of? Like, can people be trained? And this is brought up, that was brought right. up later. There was an organization called the Jane Foundation, yes. the Jane. There's, I, there's an amazing podcast episode. I think it's a This American Life episode. I'll dig around and find it. But it was all about Jane in Chicago, mm-hmm. this like underground network of trained, I think it was all women, trained women who would provide abortions. And then it was, it was busted because it was all illegal. This was, this was right before, before Roe v. Wade, because I think it got like the ring of underground abortion providers got busted up by the police. And then while the women were arrested, Roe v. Wade decision came out. And then I think it just kind of made it like a moot point. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was so fascinating to kind of walk through how this like, this underground network of safe trained people got established and like how women would find out about it and how they would access it. it it's so, so good to listen to. And it, it interviews the police officer who actually like what's, I don't know the lingo, but like, you know, arrived to arrest everybody. What's mm-hmm. that called? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. The responding busted. Officer. I keep yeah. saying busted, but like, what's the, maybe, I don't know what the word is, but, um, that, that his memory of what he had thought about it before. And then when he walked into this room and saw the women and saw what was happening and that he had this like, Oh shit. Like, I don't think we're right moment. Mm-hmm. It, it's so great. I'll find the, mm-hmm. the link, but if you don't know about that group, um, I think it's really interesting trying to give way. Yeah. Because they talked about how they had initially hired a who they thought was a physician to perform the procedures. And they found out later that this person was not a physician. And they were like, Mm -hmm. well, okay, if they're not a physician and they're performing these, then we can just be. We can learn how to do it. Trained how to do it. And I think this brings in like what happens when things are forced underground and when Mm people have to take matters into their own hands because, you know, as someone who works in the ER for the past, you know, almost 15 years now, um, I have seen a handful of really terrible outcomes from botched Mm -hmm. abortions, either Mm -hmm. obtained legally or illegally. Like Mm -hmm. there are still circumstances where people have to obtain them illegally and they are like truly awful and heartbreaking. And, 
One of the things that you could take away from that is, oh, this should never be allowed to happen in these back alley clinics or in these, you know, out of hospital, out of the correct trained people. But it's also like, well, maybe if it wasn't so taboo and maybe if it was something that we just openly trained people to do and had some sort of accepted way of being trained rather than these people that are having to do it, like in some backhanded way, um, those sorts of things would be a lot less, which I think has been an argument of the, you know, approach. Well, and I, I know that it's happening now. Like we know that yeah. yes, technically it's legal, but it's so hard to access for lots of different reasons in places. And I actually have a friend who is a doula and also has been trained to do abortions. If the need arises for women to, to access them safely, like if and when yeah. it becomes really difficult to do that. I mean, it already is really difficult to do that in a lot of places. So I it, it reading this history of like pre-Roe v. Wade, like the 40s, 50s, 60s, basically, I was like, oh, that's now. Like that's mm-hmm. what's happening now. Yeah. And I can already see a lot of the same like arguments coming up. Um, oh, the other part that I thought was interesting connected to the 60s had to do with um, – she was really quick to point out, I think, that it the feminists, the radical feminists weren't necessarily excited about these arguments, but it was about like population control and that coupled with the Cold War and um, like racism and eugenics, mm-hmm. like looking at immigration to the United States and the, the rise of communities of color just in terms of sheer numbers and that there was this like more conservative fear of that. And like an, and this is where, what you taught us about the history of the birth control pill Mm -hmm. using communities of color, whether it was in Puerto Rico or North Carolina to like experiment on, and then to try to get doctors on board with birth control as a way to control, not as a way to give women like reproductive freedom, but as a way to control populations that they thought were quote too big, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that feminists, she says, that, oh, these radical feminists, like, weren't really here for that. Um, here she says, this is page 16, Cold War concerns about communist insurrection and rebellion by people of color became national fears and fed anxiety about overpopulation. Um, but that wasn't, it was one of those moments where that's not the stream these radical feminists were swimming in, but they kind of ended up leading to the same policy positions in some cases. And so yeah. they were sort of strange bedfellows, but I, I thought that was interesting. And then she, I know we'll get into this more, um, but also talking about the arguments of like black nationalists and the nation of Islam Mm -hmm. in terms of arguing, um, and Puerto Rican nationalists, like arguing for access to fertility, like access to having children and, Mm -hmm. and having a lot of children as an act of resistance against efforts genocidal efforts and exploitation efforts like that being so it just it was fascinating and i know future chapters will be about this but the ways yep. that women of color were positioned like white women weren't hearing them say abortion's not the only issue and then men in their movements were saying like you should all just have a ton of kids because that's a way to like stick it to the man and they're just mm-hmm. like well mm-hmm. neither we, yeah, we're we not want... on board with either way. <laughs> right. Like it's more complicated than all of that. You the, know? Yeah. And this is where and that's where it gets so, 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 so complicated, um, right. which is one of the points to definitely keep in mind in the discussion of all of this is that there's 
there's so many facets to it. So there's, yes, even like women of color are saying, yes, we want to control our fertility. Like, yes, we want to have the right to have children when we want to have them and also not to when it's not mm-hmm. right for us. We don't want to be told by Either white way. women that we can't have children. We don't want to be told by black men that we must do it as a way of raising up an army for resistance, which just right. like totally harkens back to slavery as well, where women right. were just used to produce more bodies for slavery at that point, And now being used to produce bodies for resistance to racism. Um, Although I told but, like that part, I was like, well, I, I honestly get the logic of it. Like, remember when you were telling us the just like, unbelievably tragic stats of native women's forced yeah. sterilization yeah. and and just like all the efforts to commit genocide against a group of people that yeah. that the modern version of it you know is connected to forced sterilization so i that part of it really did hit me hard like yeah the ability to have families and large families is is an act of resistance and, and yes. is a, a way to be resilient, but to be but in a told way, you have to, right? And like your purpose in this movement is as baby maker. I can yeah. see why that would be if you're just an incubator and you don't right. have the support right. of being able to raise those children, which I think was then black women's argument in that time. Like, yeah, if we have access to healthcare, if we have access to housing, if we have access to food and education, then yes, maybe that's okay. But if we're having all of these children who are raised in poverty with no access to any of these other things, then how much does that really help? Like, what are we really doing? Um, but yeah, there's just all of those things are intertwined in there. So you want to have control over your reproduction or also very wary of birth control efforts because of the experimentation that had been done on women in Puerto Rico. She also brings up in this book that around the same time period is when the Tuskegee um, trials were going on with syphilis Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and the medical community was using black men as a way to study syphilis and just allowing them to, you know, die from this treatable disease just to see what happened. I mean, there's so many things in our history that make people of color leery of the medical profession, Mm -hmm. which I was saying earlier, we just don't have to encounter. So you have that going into it as well. And then you have all of the dynamics of these communities themselves, like the, the sexism that still exists within within race within any and, movement yeah, I with mean, anything like i think all of these leftist movements whether it was like the new left or black nationalists or black panthers like the the historic record of men in those movements a lot of men i should say maybe even most men like not getting the the sexism that they were reproducing mm-hmm. that that historical record is like very clear and very consistent um, across all these different groups. And it's just so frustrating, you know? I, and again, like it made me angry at our four mothers that, that they could have experienced that themselves, like the, what those men were yelling at that woman on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to not turn around and get it, like, this is another quote from, from Jennifer Nelson. She says, women of color argued that if members of the feminist movement were to live up to their claim that they represented all women, they needed to create a reproductive rights agenda that put the needs of women of color, working women and poor women at the center. This meant coupling demands for legal abortion and contraception with demands for an end to forced or coerced sterilization and 
economic guarantees that even poor women could bear the children they wanted, which just goes back to what you said about housing and healthcare. Like it's this really, I think, very smartly expansive view of reproductive rights. Like it's not just enough to say, okay, you, you can technically have a kid if you want, but it's another to say that choice isn't constrained. Like everyone has the same level of access to that choice. Like it's not Mm -hmm. constrained by poverty. It's not constrained by a lack of access to healthcare. Like you, it's truly a free choice. And, And so many quote choice movement people, whether it's reproductive rights or school choice or whatever, like I think that gets forgotten so much is the ways yeah. that, that people's choices are differentially incredibly constrained. Well, forgotten and like not even not even known in the first place. I remember mm-hmm. having that realization like earlier this year when I read Mick uh is it Mickey Kendall's book Hood Feminism? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that I hope but we're gonna definitely read and touch on in our yeah. when we get to, you know, white feminism as an issue. Yeah. Yeah. But just even considering that things like housing and education and, you know, access to food and healthcare are feminist issues, mm-hmm. putting them in the same camp as that are not, mm-hmm. is not something that I had considered either. Um, and I, there was also another quote along those lines when um, Jennifer Nelson is talking about uh, feminists accepting compromises in repeal of some of these abortion bills. Cause there were like these partial repeals of restrictions on right, abortion. Right. Um, and, but people arguing that that was not enough for them. So she said, um, all women are oppressed by the por- present abortion laws by old style reforms and by seductive new fake repeal bills and court decisions. But the possibility of fake repeal, if it becomes reality is most dangerous. It will divide women from each other. It can buy off most middle-class women and make them believe things have really changed while it leaves poor women to suffer and keeps us all saddled with abortion laws for many years to come. We will not accept insults and call them steps in the right direction. Yeah. Which I feel like we have done. That's oh, what over and like, over again. So I mean, much that, what we do. <laughs> but it's a circle back to your point about the dangers of when you are someone who has any kind of structural advantage and for white wealthy women, it's our race and our class. Mm-hmm. When you have that structural advantage, the moment you get gains that make it better for you, yeah. that structural you advantage allows away. you to be like victory, yeah. mission accomplished yeah. and like pack up your bags and go home and enjoy your new life. And, and just to remember that you have to stay in it. You have to stay in solidarity because those structural advantages only are protecting you. And, and actually like at the end of the day, aren't good for anybody because they do allow for that pitting against groups. And, you know, it's the idea of like, we're, we're only as strong as our, our weakest, most vulnerable member of our community. So it, it just is so short-sighted, but it's so common. And I, again, to like keep ourselves on the hook. I have felt that before. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, good. Like now we're okay. You know, like even thinking about the vaccine, vaccine accessibility, like knowing that there are so many other parts of the world where it's like single digit percentages of people in different countries that are 
like much more in poverty than the United States, where people are desperate to get the vaccine. And there's none of this like political nonsense. It hasn't been politicized at all, but they don't have access to it. And meanwhile, like it's just like, how much do I really think about that? Or what am I trying to do about that? When like we got our appointment, I got my vaccine and like now, okay, our family's okay. You know? Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that does, that is something that I thought more about when I was reading this as well and have thought more about um, if anyone remembers my rant a few episodes ago <laughs> Burned about into like, our brain. <laughs> <laughs> against people who had not been vaccinated. Mm. What I didn't bring up at that point, and I did know that at this point, it just it didn't come into the conversation. And I have thought about it more. And then reading this book made me think about it more mm. is that there is a complexity to people who have not been vaccinated in this Mm -hmm, country either. mm -hmm. And I think that that's important to recognize. Like when I say, you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, fuck you, don't come to the hospital. Like that's a very narrow view of things that I don't a hundred percent prescribe to at all because of the reasons that a lot of people are not vaccinated. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I may have said this on here before I know that I have discussed it with other people, but The majority of people that I have seen, at least coming through the ER, who are very ill and not vaccinated have been people in uh, people of color in general. Mm -hmm. And just because Mm -hmm. of where I live and probably the population, it has been mostly um, Latina and Latino Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have not directly asked them why they have not been vaccinated Mm -hmm. And that because it's probably not really my place to get into that at that Mm. point in time. But in other studies that have been done and in other discussions that I have listened to people um, have about this issue, there are so many reasons that they're not vaccinated that have nothing to do with not trusting, with not wanting to or with the, the political bullshit of white people who have rejected getting the vaccine. The reason that Latinx people have not been vaccinated range anywhere from they're afraid to if they're not documented because you are asked at some level for some form of ID. They ask about insurance, even though you don't have to have insurance to get it. It's not clear to people who are not who are in that community that you don't have to have insurance. They're afraid of like being turned in if they're found out that they're not legal. And also just the fact that they don't have the time to take off of work to even Mm -hmm. go and get a vaccine, let alone if they have side effects from it, they can't miss work being out a day sick Mm -hmm. because they get some sort of fever, nausea, whatever kinds of things come from it. And so it really is a completely different Mm -hmm. recognition of why people don't have it. And then a lot of the um, discussion about African-American people not getting vaccinated initially was about their mistrust of the medical system, Mm -hmm. which is completely justified. Mm -hmm. There are several people that I work with who didn't want to get the vaccine initially because they said, you know, I'll just wait and see what, what happens to everybody else. And that attitude pisses me off coming from a white person, (laughs) but is 100% justifiable coming from people of color. Like, like, oh yeah, you take it first. Like, I get that if they want to say it that way. So there's just a lot of, there's a lot of nuance and that pertains to reproductive rights. It pertains to the vaccine. And I think considering that is something that I have tried to 
put a lot more into. So I backtrack a little bit on my rant, but it still (laughs) applies to all privileged white people. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. And I I mean, that I think is a classic example of just being careful about universalizing anything like universalizing your opposition to something or universalizing your own experience or whatever it is that there, that it is often more complicated. And that doesn't, again, take away from whatever you care about or, or fighting for, or whatever you're pissed about. Like, I think you're, you're more targeted. Fuck you is completely Mm -hmm. appropriate. (laughs) So yeah, I, I really, really appreciate that. There was one other kind of lesson from even just the introduction that I thought was interesting. And that was, um, and I think we'll get into this more next week when we're reading more about the radical feminist groups, that it was just the ways that um, it, and it just reminded me so much of of the suffragists that we learned about, like debates about reform or more radical repeal or, you know, like mm-hmm. more radical uh, disruptive actions or like work within the system. And I kept thinking about our interview with Brie so long ago that I feel like we should just replay every three weeks. It just should be something <laughs> everybody just listens to again. Um, yeah. But that like her kind of political strategizing around like what does move the needle on something. And I, I actually, when I was reading through the range of efforts, I'm like, you know, I actually think all of this helps. Like, I don't think it's either or, Mm -hmm. even though those groups often are pitted against each other or like annoyed with each other or frustrated with each other. I think that's less of a concern, like what reform versus radical action than it is to be like deliberately expansive and inclusive and representative and like not universe like that seems like a better place to spend our time really working on that versus like should it be this or that it probably should be mm-hmm. everything like we need mm-hmm. all the efforts to push um mm-hmm. but it, she was talking about how in the late 60s this you know radical feminism sort of emerges because of the women who'd been involved in the civil rights movement and somewhat the anti-war movement, part of this new left, and then showing up at meetings and having the new left men be total assholes to them. And they're like, Mm -hmm. fuck this, we're out. Um, Mm -hmm. But first of all, like the names of these splinter groups were so great. Suds of floppin', which I need to know more about. (laughs) And then this one was the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, acronym WITCH. Witch. I loved Uh, that. (laughs) But just this Uh like divide. And she said sometimes it was personality conflicts, which reminded me again of the the suffragists too, or ideological differences, or just like the mechanics, like we're too big, let's have these smaller groups pop up. Um, Or even, you know, thinking like one splinter group was connecting women's oppression with, capitalism and private property and um and then others thinking that like yeah that's definitely part of it but that they didn't think that was really like a direct connect like that wasn't the root cause mm-hmm. so just these like intergroup debates that i thought were interesting and then um some of their tactics and this was a direct connection to suffrage this made me think of kate schatz in our last conversation with her about lucretia mott that there was this lucretia mott moment one of the splinter groups um, burned their voter registration cards mm-hmm. and they quote, were giving back the vote kind of akin to the way that people protested the Vietnam war by burning their draft cards. Yep. But it, they, yep. the reason it made me think of Lucretia Mott was like, we're not even going to participate in this system. That's fundamentally yep. so broken. And yep. I, I was really just thinking as I was reading through myself, like trying to think of these lessons for white women, um, but also just thinking in terms of like 
ways to make change. And I, I struggle myself with like more moderate reform, gradualist action and like more radical, like revolutionary action. I, I feel myself like understanding and being open to all of that. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? There was one other line I wanted to shout out, but what do you, are you wrestling with that too? Or do you have like a clear position you've staked out in your mind? <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, I think that personally I lean towards more of the radical reform. Like there, I, there's one image that I loved in the book where it talks about women who the women come together in some sort of meeting and they had um, written out like the ideal abortion legislation mm-hmm. and it was a blank page. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I would call myself a blank page person when it comes mm-hmm. to that probably. Um, but I also know that that's not how things work, which is frustrating, but also you but have to start somewhere. Like you, I mean, yeah, both. I I really do think both are needed. Like you have mm-hmm. to have that, those like ideals or those, that imagination of what is even possible. And then I think you have to have like savvy about how you get from point A to point B, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the, just the, the fact that, women were trying to be deliberately really disruptive. Although the piece that I, that lesson of not universalizing anything and just being really cognizant of the different combinations of identities, like the consequences for me taking more radical action are so different. Like yeah. remember that mini where we talked about that weird ball in St. Louis, like yeah. the, mm-hmm. what was it called? It was the prophets ball. Something the, yeah. Prophets. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, the hooded, veiled prophet the veiled Veiled prophet prophet. Mm -hmm. but it looks like a clan member and it's like creepy elitist racist bullshit but Mm -hmm. the that the there were these women that crashed it like literally Mm -hmm. swung in (laughs) on the ceiling (laughs) rafters grabbed the hood and like ripped it off the Uh guy and um were like tackled to the ground and and i was so inspired by that but i also think like those were all white women Mm -hmm. and if I'm sure if there are women of color, they're like, okay, maybe I'm willing to do that. But the risk I'm taking is so much greater because what are the odds? I'm just going to be like, you know, carted off and shoved up the front door and just like slapped on the wrist about it, you know, like, oh no, it could get, it could escalate so much more quickly in terms of consequences. So that when I'm weighing that like radical, it's not that there are clearly women of color who are, who we're going to read about who were like really radical and took taking all sorts of risks and doing like really inspiring things. But I think that's just part of it. Just being cognizant of how even our choice of how to participate politically is constrained in different ways. Yeah. Um, By our privilege for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, The last line I wanted to point out, and this was just like, again, trying to be careful of, um, elitism that there, mm-hmm. so they the red stockings group that we'll talk more about next week. Um, they went to this woman, Marilyn Webb, that the men like cat called her and like super awful things that they yelled at her, that the ways that the women critiqued it, they were like, shame on you brothers. You, you were acting like rednecks. And I was like, well, that seems <laughs> not a great way to describe that behavior like you're acting like poor white men like what you know so just the ways that that elitism whether it's like level of education or money or whatever like Mm -hmm. that isn't how we should admonish each other like yo shame on you for acting like 
a poor white yeah. person. Like right. that's gross. So there's yeah. just a lot yeah. of layers to all of this. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm really enjoying the book. I hope people yeah. out there have bought it and are reading it along with us because, um, and really all the books that we've read have been so interesting and, and really good reads. So I'm excited yeah. about the next yeah. section here. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us on this like kind of overview of where we're going to yeah. go and we'll get more into the details in the next week. Yay. Bye. Talk we'll talk to you, to you soon. soon. Bye. Bye.